All right, if you have a Bible, grab it and make your way to Hebrews chapter 12, where she was just uh, reading from. We're going to be continuing our series through the book of Hebrews, and it's a letter that was written to first century Jewish converts uh, living in Rome uh, who were facing persecution and difficulties. Um, Now, while it's not 100% true all the time, there's certainly places where this isn't true. But on the whole, as a principle, I still think there's a lot of good to the old adage, no pain, no gain. Right? A lot of people are like, that's not good if there's pain. Like, but no, there is. You shouldn't. Like, no pain, no gain is a pretty good adage. Not all 100% true. Like, it would not be good for me to go running right now. That'd be very painful and there'd be no, no gain in it either. But for the kids that I coach over at the high school, distance runners in particular, like, it very much is true. No pain, no gain. Like, being honest, distance running doesn't really require any skills. All you got to do is turn left, right? There's no, like, ball skills that are involved. Our whole sport is based upon pain management. That's it. That's why our sport is what other sports use for punishment, right? That's what our sport is. It's the punishment of others. So it's all about pain management. That's what the whole sport is about. No pain, no gain. And so if you just come to practice, especially on harder days, and you just lollygag and you don't put in effort, you don't endure pain, you're not going to be very good and you're not going to get better. If you go to a race and you don't lay it on the line, you just kind of get out there and jog through it. You're not going to do very good. You're not going to get better. No pain, no gain is a very true thing as it relates to distance running, as it relates to uh, weightlifting, a lot of those things. It's also very true in the walk of faith. It's also very true as it comes to following Jesus. No pain, no gain. And so we have to fight our sin, right? And that can be painful, And there's times where we as individuals make that choice to fight sin. And that's very much what the first couple of verses here in chapter 12 are about. Verses 1 through 4. Look at it again with me. Therefore, like on the basis of of, of a call to faith and all these people in the hall of faith, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin, so lay it aside, which clings so closely to us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, no pain, no gain, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. Again, they're facing persecution. So look at Jesus. He endured a lot. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And so in other words, like you're not dead yet, so keep fighting. Keep pressing. No pain, no gain. And so while there are times where we as individuals choose and, and, and by, you know, convicted by the Holy Spirit to fight our sin, there are also those times 
where God steps in and helps us with this by bringing discipline into our lives. And sometimes what happens is when that comes into our lives, we wrongly begin to think that we are somehow suddenly out of God's favor. We are somehow suddenly like He's against us. He's punishing us because things have gotten tough. We borrow a little bit from the prosperity gospel, though everyone would, 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 would rightly you know, call it out as heresy from a speaking standpoint in here. We borrow a little bit and we think, oh, when things are going good in my life, God's blessing me. And when things are getting tough, God's against me. And that's not true. That's just straight not true. Sometimes we go there. And the recipients of this letter, that's where they were at. Difficulty was coming. Persecution had come upon them and they were beginning to believe God's against me. We've made him mad and now he's punishing. And so the author wants to correct their and our wrong thinking when we go there. And he begins in verse 5. Have you forgotten You're a child of God. Have you forgotten that the Father loves you? Have you forgotten, and he quotes from Proverbs chapter 3, that God disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son, and son is a very sentimental, a very loving term here, whom He receives. And when it says son there, it says sons. Men and women are sons. Like, this is one thing I think we sometimes under, misunderstand when we read the Bible. This is a side note. We come to words like sons and we... It, men and women are sons. Men and women are also brides. Bride of Christ. Okay? So you, and we can say sons and daughters, but he's, it's, he's using a, a very endearing term here. With, but the point is, have you forgotten this? Have you forgotten your child of God? Have you forgotten that... The Father loves you. Have you forgotten that He disciplines those that He loves and chastises every son whom He receives? And He does this for their good and not our harm. In other words, the author is saying that all these trials that come upon us, they are not coming from an absentee Father. They are not coming from a malevolent or capricious or moody deity. They are coming from a loving Father who is taking you, yes, through pain in order to bring about a gain that He wants to see in your life for your good and His glory. And friends, I I can testify to this truth in my own life in big ways and little ways. One of the biggest ways was in college. And the Lord took me through some difficulty. I still don't like, but I'm grateful it happened. And I know, because I know so many of your testimonies, that it's the same in your life. You can look back on things, and if the Lord had not allowed this to happen, or put this into my life, this would not have happened. That doesn't mean I'm glad that there was a tumor. That doesn't mean I'm I didn't have one, but I'm just an example. Um, It doesn't mean I was glad that this happened, but I'm glad for what it produced. And it wouldn't have happened had the Lord not done that. 
And so it's this great big idea of the discipline of the Lord that's going to be our focus this morning. But before we really get into the text that it talks about, I want to give two qualifiers because it's so easy for us to misunderstand the discipline of the Lord and think he's like Zeus and zaps us when we do bad. And so I want to give two qualifiers. And so if you're taking notes, qualifier A is this. Discipline is fundamentally different from punishment. Discipline is fundamentally different from punishment. I want everybody to look right at me. God never punishes His children. Period. Dot. He never punishes His children. Like God can never, by any possibility, like... God's people can never, by any possibility, be punished for their sins because God has already punished all sin at the cross. Jesus paid it some. Yeah, you know the hymn. He paid it in all means all. Not some. Jesus paid it all. And so neither the justice of God nor the love of God will permit him to exact payment of what Christ paid in the full. It's been paid for. God does not punish his children. Romans 8, 1. Therefore, there is, there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. That means none. It really does. Now, for those who are not in Christ Jesus, because therefore there is now, there's therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. For those who are not in Christ Jesus, God will punish them someday. But for his people, he never ever punishes. Punishment has already been paid. But Joe, you're talking about discipline. You just read that God disciplines the ones that he loves. He chastises every son he receives. Yes, but that's, there's a fundamental difference between discipline and punishment. Like, obviously, with formative discipline, we understand that there's a, a difference. Just that kind of idea of teaching discipline. You're growing. You're being formed. We understand, yeah, that's very different from punishment. But even corrective discipline. Where the Lord is correcting us for some sin in our lives and He's seeking to bring us out. There's still a huge fundamental difference between that and punishment. And so, let's look at them side by side. On your sermon guide, if you'll flip over to the back, we put together a little chart to help us. And so we're just going to kind of walk through these, comparing and contrasting. And then, fun stuff, we're going to apply this to our own parenting. So that'll be painful. In punishment, all right, when we're looking, trying to get this fundamental difference uh, in our minds. In punishment, first, let's look at how God acts. In punishment, he acts as a judge. He is judging. Corrective discipline, he acts as a father. Punishment, the recipients of God's punishment are his enemies. But the recipients of corrective discipline are God's children. Punishment is retributive. It's justice being served. You're getting retribution. 
But corrective discipline is remedial. It's to help shape and change. Punishment flows from God's anger, His wrath. Corrective discipline flows from God's love. Under punishment, and then you just read along with me, because of His goodness and justice, God will make right all that's gone wrong in the world. All the sad things will come untrue, right? Therefore, in judgment, okay, hell, God will exercise justice upon all evil with an appropriate and corresponding punishment. Like hell's not going to be the same for everybody. Appropriate and corresponding punishment. But under corrective discipline, there's no thought of a corresponding punishment being matched with a given behavior. Rather, the thought is about what will ultimately benefit the child of God. Again, remedial, not retributive. Punishment is about justice, right? We, we all deserve justice because we've all fallen short of the glory of God, of the perfection of holiness that He demands. But thanks be to God that Jesus came and as our substitute lived a perfect life, died in our place, rose again. He paid the punishment for sin that we all deserve. And so because of Jesus, we are not punished, but we are disciplined because the motive of discipline is love. And the goal of discipline is the betterment of the child of God. Therefore, discipline is focused on the character of an individual, not acts of wrongdoing per se. This means that discipline is free to react to any action on the part of a child of God in the way which is most spiritually helpful. And this could include doing nothing in some situations. I mean, how often have you sinned and God didn't do anything? Probably most of the time. That's how he responds. And so let me just plead with you for a minute if... Like Whatever it is that you may be going through at this present moment, let go of the lie that God is against you because it's just not true. Even the difficulty, He's not against you. Again, if you have any doubts about that, look at the cross. Jesus would have never gone to the cross if He wasn't for you. But He does discipline us for our good out of love. And that's what we'll be talking about in points one, two, and three in just a second. But like I said, I want to call a time out and apply what we just talked about with corrective discipline and punishment to those of us who are parents. Because we too are called to corrective discipline, not punishment. And there's a fundamental difference. But boy, do we, do I confuse those way, way too much get it wrong because again just still looking at at this chart here we are not to act towards our children as judge but as our heavenly father with patience grace upon grace long-suffering and friends our discipline is to be just that it's to be discipline not punishment, not retributive. It's remedial. It's for our child's good, not to 
get back at them for what they did wrong. And just pro tip, okay, that honestly I've messed up on far too much. Never discipline your your kids when you're angry. Take a minute. Go for a walk. Cool down. And come back and discipline them. Because they need discipline. In love. Motivated by what is best for them. Not, I did this, so I'm going to give them what they deserve. Sometimes that may be the same thing. But the motivation, where, where is it flowing from? Because you're mad? Or because this is in their best interest. Because again, we're, we're after the heart. We're after character. We're after their formation. Not just specific acts of wrongdoing per se. And friends, sometimes you're going to respond wrongly. Okay, you are. I just talked about it. I, I do it all the time. Sorry, kids. And what do you do then? You go and you apologize to your children. And you tell them, listen, that is not how a daddy is supposed to act. That is not reflective of our Heavenly Father. I sinned in responding to your sin. Will you forgive me? And you remind them that I need Jesus just as much as you need Jesus. We all need Jesus. We are all, I mean, Romans 3 is true. All sinners, you've fallen short of the glory of God. And yes, justified, simul justus et peccator, like at the same time justified, yet still a sinner. And I need Jesus just as much as you do. Will you forgive me? You model humility. You teach them how to apologize. I'm sorry, I did this. Not I'm sorry, but... I'm sorry, but you actually caused this. I'm sorry. What you did should have no reflection on how I responded. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me for my sin? That's what you do. But you know who never has to apologize for getting it wrong? The Lord. He will never discipline you wrongly. He will never do it in a fit of anger because you are his child. And he's omniscient and he's perfect and he's loving and he's good. And so, yes, he disciplines, but it's fundamentally different from punishment. All right? That's the first qualifier. And the second qualifier we need to understand is that not all difficulties are acts of corrective discipline. Not every difficulty you face is an act of corrective discipline. And uh, God's not karmic. He's gracious. And sometimes trials, they're just that. They're trials. They're not a result of something you necessarily did wrong. I mean, you think about Job. Better yet, think about Jesus. Difficulties? Yeah, hated, despised, rejected, beaten, man of constant sorrows, crucified. Not because he did anything wrong. And so friends, just because something goes seemingly wrong in your life doesn't mean necessarily 
that it has anything to do with you. Like John Piper says this all the time, that, that, that like at any given time, God's up to 10,000 things in your life and you might be aware of about three of them. And so it's tragic then when some people blame themselves for just trials. It's not anything they did. And so they blame themselves. Oh, lost my job. Must have done something wrong. Oh, had a miscarriage. Must have done something wrong. God doesn't punish his kids. Not all difficulties are discipline. It's hard. God's mysterious. I don't, I don't know that we can be like, well, this one's a trial and this one's Like, I don't think we can get that. But we do need to understand not all trials are discipline. And so it's tragic when you blame yourself for something and you just live in that with a, with a very sensitive conscience and therefore you just automatically think, oh, hardship, therefore you're borrowing from the prosperity gospel when you do that. It's not true. It's not true. Again, Look at Job, look at Jesus. And it's also tragic when people's friends therefore say, well, you must be going through something hard because you did sin. You just don't realize it. Like Job's friends that aren't really friends. And so for today, just know, like we could sit here for a long time, but for today, just know that not all difficulties are acts of corrective discipline. There's a gazillion other things that it could be, most of which we would never understand. But God does because he's sovereign and good. And he's working in mysterious, behind-the-scenes, silent sovereignty all the time. Turning things around, like with Joseph, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. But again, just for today, just understand, not all difficulties are acts of corrective discipline. And so we're not to live under a heavy burden of constantly scrutinizing and flagellating ourselves with feelings of guilt and shame and an inadequacy instead of trying to figure out the exact reason for this. Just consider Jesus. Put your eyes on Him. Consider Him who endured from, such sin, from sinners such hostility, though He did nothing wrong, against Himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. All right? A lot more we can say there, but we've got to press on. So with those two qualifiers in mind, discipline is fundamentally different from punishment and not all difficulties are acts of corrective discipline. Let's now talk about when God does bring discipline into our lives. And so first of all, number one in your notes, discipline proves that God loves us. Discipline proves that God loves us. Look at verse 5. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? Like, did you forget this, guys? When you're complaining? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary. Remember verse 4, don't grow weary. When reproved by Him. For the Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom, the father do, whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline in which you all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. 
God disciplines his kids. He punishes those who aren't his kids. Besides this, we have earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? Discipline brings life. For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them because they don't always get it right. But he disciplines us for our good that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. And so, first of all, discipline actually proves that God loves us, that he's not ambivalent, that he actually cares, he actually acts, he wants the best for us. He's not stoic and fatalistic. He's a father, and he's a perfect one, and an omniscient one, and an omnipotent one. And he puts all of those things into raising, forming, shaping, changing each one of his children. Like laissez-faire, like hands-off parenting isn't loving. When you love You want to see your kids grow, so you increasingly give them more challenges. Like a great example is just educationally. They progress through grades. Each year gets a little harder. Each year has a little more homework. Each year the tests and the the curriculum is harder and harder and harder and harder. And they are being built by that. This is more like kind of formative discipline. And you put them through that and kids are just let you in. Not because they hate you. But because they love you. And they want to see you grow so that you can go on to the next step and the next step and the next step and the next step in love. He forms us because he loves us. That's formative discipline. But he also employs corrective discipline. Because he loves us and when he sees us heading off tracks, he wants to stop us and he wants to correct us and teach us, don't don't go that way, that's death. Over here is life. This is the way to go. And research and experience, both, both of those prove that kids respect and actually feel safer in homes where there are boundaries, where there are rules. They help kids feel safer and kids develop more healthily in that environment. Parents who try to win their kids' affection by just giving them everything they want, treating them as peers and friends when they're, when they're still little and just capitulating to them, oh, you, you don't want to go to school today? Okay, you don't have to go to school. And I know we'd never do that, right? Oh, you don't want to go to church today? Well, okay, we won't go. And we do do that. Which one's more important eternally? Don't let your kids determine your church involvement. Like, obviously, you're going to have a lot of things. I mean, we're always running plates or spinning and keeping this spinning for all of our four kids. It's I get it. I get it. (laughs) But Sunday is the Lord's day. You can do whatever you want on Saturday, but Sunday is the Lord's day. Keep it the Lord's day.
And so God, I mean, the fact that he's actually involved, that he actually works in our lives, he actually jumps in, he actually notices they're going off tracks, I want to pull them back over here, or I want to form them in this way, I want to, it actually proves, not that he's against you, but that he's for you. If I was not involved in my kids' lives and seeking the best for them, I would not be a good dad. You would not be a good mom. It's the fact that you aren't just like, whatever, that shows you actually love them. And it's the same with God in us. He's guiding us. He's teaching us. Because He loves us. So number one, discipline proves that God loves us. Number two, discipline is painful. Discipline is painful. Look at verse 11 again. For the moment... All discipline seems painful. All seems painful. And so the author doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't lie to us like, hey, it's going to be great. No, he says it's going to be painful. When God disciplines us, it's not fun. Like whether that's corrective discipline and, you know, because we did something wrong or it's formative discipline just to develop uh, or prepare us for things. Neither of those is necessarily fun. But they are both good. C.S. Lewis puts it like this. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. So I'm going to let you in on a little secret. I think the statute of limitations has run out so I can speak freely. I am a felon. Not on my record, if you look it up. When I was 16, me and my cousins bashed in about 50 mailboxes. Some of them were drive-bys with an aluminum bat out the window or actually in the bed of the truck swinging. Others, we stopped and ripped the whole thing out of the ground or just beat it to death. And looking back, like, why did you do that, Joe? Like... It just goes to prove that your frontal cortex is not formed until you're like 25. Okay? It's just stupid. But we did. Did all this. And then we got busted by a retired sheriff. And um, he busted us. He was like, I'm taking you all to jail, da, da, da. It was at my cousin's house. He and my uncle went around back. Don't know what happened back there. He came back and got in his car and drove off. But then I had to go home and I had to tell my parents. Here's what happened. And that was painful. I'd go confess it. Here's what we did. That was, that was painful. That was not fun. It was regret or sorrow. Fessing up to bashing 50 of those. And then it was painful when they made us go door to door. (laughs) Knocking on every single door of every single one that we did. And then it was painful when one of those people was inside, bald, oxygen, dying of cancer, and I'd bashed his stinking mailbox in. That was painful. And it was painful to spend the entire summer earning money hauling hay and mowing grass to go to Lowe's and buy more mailboxes and paint and quickcrete and posts and replace them all. 
the way they had been. Our painting jobs were not as good as some people's. Boy, were they like elaborate paintings. We did the best we could. It was painful, but it was good. And it taught us a slew of lessons. And so discipline is painful. And sometimes the way it comes into your life can be a little more subtle than that. Sometimes it's just the pain of being cut to the quick as you read Scripture. Oh, this is me. Regret and sorrow. Listening to a sermon. Sometimes it's just in a conversation with a friend. They're not even talking about something, but they they just say something and it cuts you to the quick. The Holy Spirit takes that, uses that to convict you. And it's painful, but it's good. It's really, really good. Sometimes it's more painful and it's your friend looking you in the eye and be like, bro, what is going on? What's happening? And you confess that and that's painful, but good. But good. But sometimes... Let me say this first. If God, if you keep hearing the same verse, the same message, the same thing in a short period of time from Scripture or people who are in spiritual authority over you, over and over and over in a very short time, God's probably speaking to you in that. But sometimes if you just keep on ignoring things, you keep ignoring, you realize God's trying to convict me of this, He's trying to convict me of this, and you just keep ignoring it sometimes... I mean, he's going to give you a ton of time to repent and turn around, but sometimes then he'll, for your good, because he loves you, up it a little bit, right? He'll shout a little bit louder with his megaphone. He'll bring some hardship into your life to get your attention. Now, again, the danger, as we talked about, is then just automatically start thinking and looking every difficulty that comes into your life is necessarily a corrective act of discipline, which it's not, but sometimes it is. But we don't need to sit and spin our wheels all the time just trying to figure out which one it is. And so I'll give you an example. This isn't a huge deal, but it's, it's, it's an example I have. Like, is my ankle right now, the fact that I rolled it and going to be not able to run for a while, a good while, is that an act of discipline? Well, I think it is. But not necessarily corrective. Now, it could be, like, I can think of a plenty of sins the Lord could be correcting me for. But we don't need to sit there spinning our wheels trying to figure that. I mean, I'm a feeble-minded, limited by space and time and mortality. I can't even begin to say this happened because of that reason. Like, we're not, don't be Pat Robertson. I don't think we should even try to do it unless it's blatantly clear. But I do think my ankle is at least formative. It's at least God forming something. And that doesn't mean I'm happy about it. Thank you, Lord. Glad this happened. Well, let's pray for everybody who's spraining their ankles. They can be formatively disciplined. Right? No, of course not. There's things that I can't do that I was really, really, really looking forward to. And that's a big bummer. Don't like that. But I do know that God is going to use it in some way for something I need to be shaped in. And Lord knows I need plenty of that. Something I need forming in. Something I need changing in. Or maybe He's going to use it 
to protect me from something that I'll never realize was even going to happen if I had, this hadn't happened because it's, I'm limited. Maybe it'll show me in heaven someday. Or if, hadn't, hadn't, if I hadn't done that to you, this would have happened. Right? We don't know. We just know God's good. He's sovereign. He's kind. He's at work. He's shaping. And He's forming us. He's good dad. He's not ambivalent. And so rather than receiving this with gloom and melancholy, like being honest, I pretty much did last week, I can and should receive this as a good thing, though painful, from a father who loves me and is for me and has purposes I don't understand, I don't see, and are super mysterious, but are good. And even outside of discipline for just a second, there, I mean, when just straight up tragedy comes into our lives and things happen and we don't know why. Don't know why. We don't need to try to understand why necessarily. We live the fight of faith. We trust in faith. We let God be mysterious. But we also understand this. Remember at the cross, it was the greatest moment of wickedness. And out of the greatest moment of evil came the greatest good thing that there could ever be. And if God can do that at the cross, He can certainly do that in our lives. Though we do not understand. But we will by and by then. Like in all of our trials, we've got to learn to look outside of now and look to that day. That's our hope. That's where we're headed. Not just this life. We've got to have a bigger picture. And so there's corrective discipline and there's just formative discipline. Paul had a thorn in the flesh. Why? Don't know. But it did something for him the Lord wanted to do. And so it's not all corrective. Some of the saintliest people I've ever met, some of the most obedient, godly people I've ever met are some of the biggest sufferers I've ever met. And it's not because they did something wrong. But God's doing something mysterious. As we sang, He moves in mysterious ways. Frowning providence behind it. Smiling face. The clouds you so much dread will burst with Beauty on your face. I don't know if I quoted it right, but close. And so again, in these moments, look to Jesus. And not only look, consider Jesus. Verse 4, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself. Right? Consider him. Think about him so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted when you face these things. And so discipline proves that God loves us. Discipline is painful. But here's the big one. Discipline is for our good. Discipline is for our good. And remember, we've got these qualifiers right now. We're not just talking about all the bad things that necessarily happen in life. We are talking about when God specifically is disciplining. And that's for our good. And in all these things, he turns them. He turns them. But number three, discipline is for our good. It's for our good. And so look again at verse 10. 
For they, our parents, our fathers, disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. And for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline is for our good. Like that, that, that's the whole point. That's the whole point. That's why God takes us through it. And so again, all that God is doing is for the good of those who are His children. He is working for your joy and your good even when you cannot perceive it. Silent sovereignty, behind the scenes, working things. You think about the million things that it took for you to be in this place at this moment. Or for you to even be alive. Like If you do the math and go back so many ancestors back this person i mean it's crazy i don't even know if that's a permutation or a combination whatever it is but it's crazy math and he's working in your life for your good and jesus calls him in john chapter 15 the great vine dresser the great vine dresser and so he prunes us in order to grow us and sometimes that pruning is pretty cutting way back. It's a breaking. And again, it's painful. And it's something that leaves a wound. But there are such things as wounds of grace. Just like those of you who've had heart surgery. They had to cut you open to heal your heart. And the Father has to do that with us sometimes. He has to cut us. To heal us. But they're wounds of grace. He loves you too much to leave you alone. Leave you to your own stuff. He's going to work. He's going to intervene. And he's willing, as I've said before, to break your fingers. To get you to let go of the thing that you're clinging to that's killing you. He's willing to break your fingers to save your life. He loves you that much. God is at work in us to make us holy, verse 10. Mold us, shape us, fashion us after His image. And so that means pruning. And so let me just encourage you, if you're feeling pretty stubbly, lots of pruning, lots of pricks, that means the Lord's at work. He's pruning you. He's shaping you. He's molding you so that you, like he's, he, he's pulling things away. He's chopping things off. He's cutting them way back in order to prepare you to bloom and blossom like never before. So don't despise the words. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the word. He does it for those he loves. And then even in the pain of the moment of the discipline. Guess what? He's with you. He's not standing stoically by, you know, well, this will teach them a lesson. I hope they learn from this. And he gets in the boat with you. Even though he brought the storm. He climbs down with you. He doesn't say clean up, then come back. He climbs down and says, hey, let's, let's, let's do this together. Give me that burden. Give me that load here. You can have mine. It's easy and it's light. I'll take yours. Let's go.
How many of you in here are sinners because you're a Dallas Cowboys fan? Uh, years ago, they had a coach named Tom Landry. How many of you know, have heard that? that? Yeah, most of us. Tom Landry, legendary. He was there for like 20 plus years. Legendary coach. Invented the 4-3 defense. 29 years. Thank you, Encyclopedia Gill. <laughs> Which he is. 29 years. And he was once asked, like, what's the job of a coach? And this is what he said. The job of a coach is to make athletes do what they don't want to do in order to be what they've always wanted to be. And friends, in a lot of ways, that's the way the Lord's working and pruning and disciplining in our lives. God's doing in us and through discipline. Because of His desire for our good, He's making us what we were meant to be and what we, in our sanest moments, want to be. And He's doing it by means we would never dream of. Never imagine. He moves in a mysterious way. And so, friends, don't grow weary or faint-hearted in difficulty. God's not against you. He's for you. He loves you. He prunes. He shapes. And He does it to yield a peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. For your good. For His glory. Job 5, 17, 18, the last thing I'll say. Behold, blessed is the one whom God reproves. Therefore despise not the discipline of the Almighty, for He wounds, but He binds up. He shatters, but His hands heal. He's good. He loves you. He's for you. Let's pray. Father, we confess you are mysterious and we can't wrap our arms completely around everything that, that, that you do, that you are, nor are we even supposed to. How could a finite little brain fathom the one who calls the stars out? But yet you, with all of that power, all of that wisdom. You put it at work in our lives. And you bring good out of difficulty. And so, Father, we, we're not happy about difficulty that comes, but we are happy. We are grateful for the good you bring out of it. And Father, as we pray and as we sing, uh, Lord, truly, as the hymn says, have thine own way. Or as we sang earlier, use my life in any way you choose. A living sacrifice. Trusting that you know better than we do. That you are good. And you're a good, good father. When it's obvious to us. And even when sometimes it's a little bit hard to see. And thank you that you're patient with us in our struggles, in our tears, 
in our songs of lament, like the book of Psalms. How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? In the next page, you are my shelter. You're my source of strength. And then right back, where are you, God? And then, you're my shield. You're my defender. And so thank you for your grace. Thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your presentness. Your, your being with us. Your Emmanuel. God with us always. With grace and mercy abounding. In Jesus' name.